Dora, He-Man's twin sister and defender of the Crystal Castle. This is Spirit, my beloved steed. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my sword and said, For the honor of Grayskull! Few others share this secret. Among them are Light Hope, Madame Raz, and Cowl. Together, we and my friends of the Great Rebellion strive to free Isheria from the evil forces of Horda. Podcast. I am Chris Maverick, and I am here as usually with Wayne Wise. Hey, hey Wayne, I'm here again. And as often, I guess sometimes, as sometimes with Katia. Hi, Katia. Hey, 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 Katia. So this, I think, is going to be an interesting topic, you, you at need least to, for you me. You need to introduce Hannah. I will. <laughs> okay, <you just laughs> I was going to introduce Hannah. <laughs> well, it, no, uh, it means it's interesting to people, and then the topic. I usually introduce the regular people, and then I introduce the topic, then I introduce the new person. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just to make sure. Maybe I'll just start talking and see if they can tell us apart. Well, that happens sometimes. Yeah. But. We, uh, yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to clip this or not. <laughs> I, would, I would maybe shorten it. <laughs> Well, so anyway, Sorry. actually, I'm not, I am not clipping it. I am leaving this. Sorry, so guys. as Katia as has ruined the format of the show, Hi. we're also here with Katia's colleague, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hi, thanks for having Hi, me. Hi, Hannah, welcome. So the topic for this show, which should be interesting if you are a child of the 80s, like me. Actually, I guess I'm a child of the 70s, but I was around in the 80s. I don't know, whatever. But when I was a kid, I was a big fan of the TV show She-Ra because I don't know. I really like stuff. It's supposed to be a girl cartoon, but I was a boy and I don't care. It was really awesome. For those of you who don't know, She-Ra is a cartoon about He-Man's twin sister who was kidnapped and taken to another planet and then grew up and then eventually got the powers of He-Man. So she's on her planet doing the He-Man thing as a character named She-Ra. And it's essentially exactly the same cartoon as He-Man, except for it's for girls. Oh, and the other thing that made She-Ra cooler than He-Man is if you watch She-Ra, there's this one character called Looky who's hidden in every single episode and you have to go around and you have to find Looky and it makes it a game and it makes the show really interesting to watch. I love the show. No one cares. <laughs> but... No one caring is what made it interesting because the show was recently announced that it was going to be rebooted by Netflix. And the showrunner for the new show is Noelle Stevenson, who we've mentioned on the show before. She is the artist and writer behind an all ages comic called Lumberjanes. All ages aimed primarily at young girls, but 
it's just a fun book. Is that a yeah. fair way of yeah. calling Lumberjack? Yeah. It's just, it's delightful. Um, but Noel Stevenson at age 26 has become the showrunner of a new, probably million dollar television show on Netflix because she's cool and my life is empty and meaningless. But, She's got the show and she decided she was going to revamp it because when you reboot a show, that's what you do. So she revamped it and she created her own design for She-Ra and her own aesthetic. And then the Internet had a shitstorm because that's what the Internet does. That's what, purely what it was invented for. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Al Gore. <laughs> well, yeah, Al Gore invented the Internet for, <laughs> to protect us in case of a nuclear war, to complain about things, for porn. And cat pictures. Yes. That's what the internet or does. any mixture of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure of the order. But the internet complained about the outfit. And, you know, and I saw the complaints before I ever saw the outfit. So I saw people complaining about it on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, well, I need to check this out. It was earned. They were released around Comic-Con time, which was a couple of weeks ago as we record this. And I said, well, let me see what's going on here. And people were like, well, she looks too manly. This isn't right. She-Ra looks manly. She's supposed to be the perfect woman. And I was like, eh, I don't know about this. And I looked at the pictures and in my estimation, she doesn't look terribly manly. She looks like a Noel Stevenson drawing, which means she looks like eh, roughly a 15 year old girl. She's supposed to be an adult. I believe she looks like one of the lumberjanes with the sword. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She looks like one of the lumberjanes with a sword, which is how Noel Stevenson draws. And, and I think this is what people really meant by when they said she was too manly looking. She doesn't particularly have large boobs. Yeah. So that's the problem. The problem is people were upset because she was tits aren't big enough. And I thought, well, that's a shame. But no one was saying that. They were saying she looked too manly. So we looked at the images and I said, well, that's not bad. But then I started thinking about one of the very earliest ideas we had for this show which is seven years ago. <laughs> is it that long ago? I don't know. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Six or seven years ago when we were discussing, it took us a while to actually do the show from when we first started talking about it. But Katia and I were sitting in our office and we were talking about the idea of revamping superheroine costumes. Because one common complaint with comics and cartoons is why are the girls dressed essentially so slutty? That's <laughs> for better, for lack of a better way of saying, it. but it, lots of revealing outfits. The technical term would be in the male gaze. And then there became a movement to sort of have fan art to revamp costumes. But one of the ways people were doing this was they were trying to desexualize the, the costumes. But in the view that Katia and I sort of found at that time, the way they usually did this was to defeminize them, which is actually kind of a different thing. And we thought, right. why don't we talk about that today? So that's my estimation of what this topic is. Kati, what do you have to add? Um, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, our, I mean, all of our conversations, I think I, I come from the perspective of being a girl who really likes clothes and I'm not the girliest person on the planet, but you know, I don't hate a lot of costumes. So like even the original She-Ra 1.0 costume, I'm like, okay, add like four inches of that hemline and I'd wear that. Um, <laughs> I've been to Halloween parties where I've seen women dressed as She-Ra 1.0. We're going to call her She-Ra 1.0 for the original <laughs> series and She-Ra 2.0 for the new series. Yeah. That, that's the, the nomenclature we sort of fell into when we wrote the blog about this. Um, but yeah, one of my things is always, I mean, specifically, uh, you know, as a female, I think that I am, am as annoyed when characters are redesigned to look less feminine, look less girly, because it's suggesting, we talked about this in the blog post, I think um, all of us actually, like it's suggesting that in some way feminine qualities looking feminine in some way isn't like 
can't be reconciled with being a superhero. So that somehow if you take away my twirly skirt, you're suggesting that like twirly skirts and girliness and wearing dresses and liking pink um, also can't be super. So I think it's, it's yeah. So I think it often in when they're trying to make these characters more um, palatable, especially to female audiences and more sort of politically correct, if we want to follow that, I think it can really easily like go into devaluing things that we would otherwise like would otherwise want to value. Mm-hmm. And we're not necessarily saying so. One of the rough things about this topic is when I mean, at least you're a girl. I'm a boy. <laughs> so when I'm writing about this, I have to be very, very careful that I do not want random Reddit 4chan MRA types <laughs> to come across the Vox Popcast blog and be like, oh, this guy is a PhD and he says it's OK for her to have. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that she needs to be a sex symbol. I'm saying she can be a sex symbol or she cannot be. But the idea that we need to have her dress like a boy in order to be taken seriously is damaging, or at least that's the argument we're going to try to make tonight. Is that a fair yeah. way of putting it? Yeah, I mean, so. I think, I mean we, we've, we've talked about this so many times on the podcast. I think for, my, for me, it's mainly like it's not it's not that one or the other is damaging. It's that variety is important. Yes. And to be fair, and Wayne can back this up as. In comics right now, actually, in comics prior to about three or four years ago, the vast majority of mainstream and by mainstream, I mean from the big two companies from Marvel and DC, but also from smaller companies, the vast majority of female superheroines are essentially just sex symbols. And that's changing somewhat. But that is that is certainly the tradition from frankly from all time which is you know part of my dissertation but particularly from about the 90s to about 2010 it, 2015 there are no other options it became much more exaggerated during that point yes yeah. I mean, it, it, it's always so, been a piece of it but yes so that's what we're talking about now it's it's changed a little bit in what i would say a very successful version of fixing this with air quotes around it is the the comic book ms marvel starring kamala khan who whose outfit I love, it works for the character. And what I especially loved about it is they address it. In the very first story arc, as her first costume, she adopts the costume of the original Ms. Marvel, which is essentially a thong leotard with the legs cut up to her waistline. Yeah. Yeah. And she puts it on and she's like, Oh, oh, this is not right for me. She, she just feels naked and exposed and she's very nervous Mm -hmm. for the entire first two issues that she's wearing it. And until she realizes this is something more my style, but the revamped costume in my view is still Mm -hmm. very feminine. Well, I to throw in a a comics anecdote because that's, that's primarily what I'm here for. The, the character of rogue in the X-Men, I was at a convention when she was first introduced into comics. I met the artist, Paul Smith, who drew her first appearance in the, well, not, I guess Simonson drew her first appearance, but Paul Smith was drawing the run that she was introduced to the team. And I I met Paul and was talking about it. And she was coming on the team and Chris Claremont, who was writing X-Men at the time, very overtly designed her powers. And for those of you who don't know Rogue, if she touches you skin to skin, she absorbs your powers and has no control over it and accidentally can can accidentally absorb all your memories and leave you a vegetable and et cetera, et cetera. So touching people was an issue for her. And Chris Claremont very overtly designed that character, came up with that power set. So they would be forced to draw a character, a female character who wore neck to toe, fully covered, not exposing skin. 
that was part of his goal when he created that character. And then somewhere in the 90s, she got really big hair and really big boobs and all of that kind of went away. Um, but I, you know, that, I find that interesting. She was introduced in like 1980, 81, 82, right in there someplace. And that was something that her creator was actively looking at at the time in terms of how do we present this character that she can be powerful and yes, sexy, and we don't have to show her belly. So we're going to deconstruct that over the next hour and for a little background. So Wayne is very much a comics person as if you listen to the show, you know that. that Yeah, My areas of expertise are comics and sexuality. Katia, you're here for fashion and Hannah, I just met, so I don't know. So this is where I would normally introduce uh, Hannah. (laughs) Hi, Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the show. But Hannah, welcome to the show. How do you know me, which you don't? So how do you know Katia? <laughs> I am in the same year as Katia in our PhD program at Duke. Um, I admit that I am a Victorianist, so not quite in the area of comics, but I spend all my free time reading them and watching Marvel films because... I feel like it. Um, <laughs> Which is the, it's the best reason. reason. Because, um, because reasons. Yeah, best I, reason. So, uh, Laura Mulvey um, has made it onto every syllabus I've ever taught. <laughs> and, and I think every episode of this podcast. So. <laughs> yep, probably. Yeah. And uh, actually, I, I snuck Laura Mulvey into the class I TA'd for because I was offered a chance to give a lecture. And I was like, huh, students should know this. We're studying Hitchcock. Let's do it. <laughs> for, so, oh, for Hitchcock. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. So when you, t- when you teach it, is, I'm wondering if your experience is like mine, cause I teach it. This is, this is my standard way of introducing Mulvey. I give it on, as an assignment on a Monday, always a Monday or whatever the first day of the week is Monday, Monday for Wednesday or Tuesday for Thursday. I give it as an assignment and I say, read this for a journal entry tonight. I want you to write your thoughts. I want you to understand that you're not going to understand this. You're going to be very confused we will talk about it on Wednesday and they laugh. And I say, no, 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 just, just work your way through it. You have no other reading for tonight. We will talk about it on Wednesday. And then they come in on Wednesday and they're like, I don't know. There's something about castration. They have no idea. <laughs> Is that usually the first piece of theory that you're teaching them? Uh, depends on the class. Uh, okay. In my comics and sexuality class, it's um, <laughs> it comes after Butler, which is not better. <laughs> uh, for the non-academics in the podcast, everyone's like, what? Hmm? Yeah. Huh? yeah. <laughs> That's what Google's for. But no, it is a hard reading that is we're going to do a show on it at some point just on breaking down what her theories are, because it is an important concept that I feel is often misused on the Internet because. To back up for people who didn't read the blog, and as I plug every episode, go read the blog, www.voxpopcast.com. That is the essay that the term male gaze comes from. And the male gaze, as Malvi defines it, is very, very specific. In fact, I think she's almost a little too specific. She is very specific about what the male gaze is, how it works, and how it can be used. It's been expanded beyond her original theory. The internet tends to use it as this means sexy. Sexy is bad. And it's not quite that. So I'm wondering how it for, for Hannah, since you you teach it as well as I do, how does it usually go over in your classes? Uh, actually, um, everyone seems to love it once they understand it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so like this particular, like the last time I taught it, 
I didn't actually have it as required reading. I just had to kind of explain it in basic terms because it was a 90s person lecture class. Um, and it was really interesting because I had to figure out how do I simplify this down and, you know, kind of not explain this castration stuff that they've never heard of <laughs> and give them what they need to understand. And like, actually like they really seem to get it because the way the syllabus was laid out is kind of like the canon of American film from mm-hmm. the silent movies up to the present where the last movie we watched in full was Wally. Um, and so we, we were like all, all the people in the syllabus, um, who were directors were all men. Uh, the only person of color was Spike Lee. And so what, when Laura Mulvey talks in her essay about how, you know, um, there, there's a patriarchal culture around the cinema in general. I think that really spoke to this class because of what a lot of what got canonized and is taught in film classes is from a very male perspective. And there were very few, like even female protagonists on the syllabus. So it made sense to them. And also like, uh, they really like seem to understand, especially in terms of Hitchcock, um, that, you know, like the male characters are active, whereas the female characters are passive. And it's not so much that sexy is bad. It's that men are active and are are allowed to look and women are the objects that are being looked at. And they do not necessarily have agency outside of that. And, um, for those of you who don't know the essay, the kind of like thing that Laura Mulvey points out is that you as the viewer, it doesn't matter what your subject position really is, the camera and the way it works, uh, kind of puts you in the position of like the male protagonist who is creeping on the woman. Um, I actually, I showed what basically what I did to introduce it was I showed them that clip of James Bond with Halle Berry coming out of the water. Oh, nice. I used the shot of Megan Fox in Transformers while she's fixing the car. Yeah. So you and 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 I use um what's the other one? Oh, oh, I use um um just because it's very obvious, I use the scene from American Beauty where Kevin Spacey's character is watching Mina Suvari cheerleading and everybody else disappears. Right. And another Kevin Spacey movie which I've taught alongside um the essay LA Confidential when uh yes. Kevin Spacey and the character um, Ed Huxley, like, look, not Ed Exley, sorry, not Huxley. I guess I'm just thinking sci-fi. Um, look at Lynn Bracken. Like, they, there's literally, you know, like, binoculars or even, like, cameras. And if you just Google almost any of those clips, you can just literally see how the viewer is put in position of the dude. And that kind of explains the essay if you don't feel like reading it. <laughs> yes. But anyway, she tries very hard, which is what's interesting. She tries very hard to take a stance, but not take a stance. She's not saying sexuality is bad. She's saying that this is how cameras work in in Hollywood cinema. And she's very specific in arguing the male gaze is purely an aspect of Hollywood film and doesn't translate to any other media. I argue very, very strongly that she's wrong. Comic books are full of it. Television's full of it. She's she is very anti it working on television. In fact, she she lectures about it and and other parts, other essays that she's she's written complain about people using it for TV for reasons that we're not going to get into on this show. But elements of the male gaze that sort of position you as a male voyeur when you're watching the film is when a female enters the view of the camera. 
typically the action of the rest of the film stops so as to introduce the female character. The camera will pan up from her feet to her head. There's a lot of self-touching. You see fragmented portions where you might just see her butt or her shoulder or her arm. It's very much pieces of woman. The camera needs to take a moment to drink in the beauty of the female actress playing the character because that sells movie tickets. That is the, at least the thought. Malvi argues that this doesn't work the other way and people think that Malvi's arguing, I don't want women to be sexy. She's actually saying that she wants women to be sexy and also active. And she wants men to be sexy and also active, not necessarily at the same time. She argues that it never works for men because... And the way she puts it is man is reluctant to gaze upon his own exhibitionistic like. In other words, men won't watch movies with sexy dudes in them because they're homophobic. And the counter example, which also kind of proves her point that I use when I'm teaching this is Magic Mike, which... Magic Mike is the definitive female gaze movie. It is uh, men in that movie are constantly positioned in exactly the way that women are typically positioned in a film like that, complete with self-touching body fragmentation, camera, camera pauses. So it gets very complex. And the reason we care about it at all for this show, just so we don't talk about it for the entire night, is superhero costumes are typically presented such that very much for the female characters, we are to think of them as sexy, as implicit with their character. And I think if you look at the image on the blog that I have of She-Ra and He-Man standing next to each other, he is objectively more naked than she is. He's showing far more skin, but she comes across as far more of a sex symbol. He's basically in a loincloth, but the way we code women in short skirts, the way we code women when we look at a low neckline his, on her on her bodice makes us he, think of them. His, as, his exaggerations and, and costume we read as power, not sex. And I think, I mean, that's certainly, that's encoded in the way we view masculinity and femininity and the, the way we tend to perceive those things, culturally speaking. I think it's also, for me, it's, I mean, I'm just looking at the image right now. I mean, He-Man, what you're talking, like what you're talking about with the exaggerations, like He-Man's exaggerated in like ways that would make sense for somebody who's like super athletic, running around, punching mm-hmm. people, like doing whatever superhero things he's doing. Whereas like she was not, like she does not look like, she, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that she doesn't look like a fit woman, but she doesn't look like a, like I'm thinking of like CrossFit women. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, she looks like a Barbie right. doll. She looks like she doesn't, she doesn't look muscular. She doesn't look like she can like lift cars and like all this other stuff. So it's like, she's also running around in heels and speaking as a person who has occasionally run in heels, not practical for every day. <laughs> At least not for me. Uh, you can now run T-Rexes in them. What are you talking about? She takes the heels off in that I mean, movie. I, in, in a chunky heel, yes. In a chunky, in, in a chunky heel, I'll outrun dinosaurs, maybe. In a stiletto, not so much. Um, so I think it also goes to the point that, like, the way that the way that female characters are sort of depicted and exaggerated, and it's not necessarily that I think. Like, I know a lot of people talk about like costumes should be functional and practical, and I think there's. I agree to that with, to a certain degree, but I think there's also a, a place for fantasy in costumes where it doesn't have to be realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to be able to sprint in heels not happening yeah, right but sort of what Wayne was talking about like the things that are being portrayed here and exaggerated here are not the sorts of things mm-hmm. we associate with power they're the things we associate with like sexy yeah. women specifically yeah absolutely she looks like an ice skater which is what the outfit is and i don't know that i believe that costumes necessarily should be functional i mean i don't know that his is functional he's wearing a loincloth and a bondage harness i would not go into a sword fight wearing that outfit no no absolutely not <laughs> but like I, I think that i mean for women in particular like the heels i think is the iconic yeah. thing of like 
no one would run around in heels. Yes. It seems silly. Because I think the thing is, though, even within superhero costume land, I feel like He-Man's, He-Man's costume is believable. And maybe that's something else we could talk about, is I feel like also there's something to do with... Because I think that when people talk about female costumes and they bring up the practicality and the functionality argument, it's interesting to me because maybe we're paying... We, we have a problem with the idea that women's costumes can be have this fantasy element of, yes, I would love to be able to sprint in stilettos. At least to me, and I think this is a male gaze issue, I think that because of the way we code the body, the and I mean either body, the musculature of the body, our society sexualizes the female body in a way that we don't the male body, which is not to say we don't sexualize the male body, but particularly the Caucasian male body, we don't sexualize it as much. It becomes uniform. So we look at He-Man and we say, well, of course he can fight in that. No, it's, it's the worst outfit ever for, for an actual, for actual combat, but he looks like he's strong. And it's the first thing you associate him with is raw physical power. He looks His like Tarzan. He-Man. <laughs> the, 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 the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Yeah. And hers, you look at her and you think, I, I mean, so quite frankly, that's the kind of thing that I might love if a woman wore to the bedroom. And mm-hmm. that's what she looks like for a cartoon for seven-year-olds. And it's hard to escape that because even to the point where, and this was actually a theme, to the point where you make a woman muscular, as is the case in the comic book She-Hulk, depending on the artist, but she is often drawn as physically imposing, not to the level of the Hulk, but certainly she's drawn muscular. But Several artists and writers, um, in particular John Byrne, have written in the context of her book about how she is aware that no matter how she's going to dress, she is going to be viewed through a lens of sexuality. So she has tried to make it work for her. But at the end of the day, when drawn correctly, she's drawn like a bodybuilder. That's what she should be. She is pure muscle, much like the Hulk. And yet... The Hulk is wandering around with no shirt on and ripped pants. And typically we don't view him as a sexual being the way that we always will. She, yeah, I, I want to tap something you just said there, Mav, um, that this looks like something she would wear into the bedroom. And I think this is a fashion thing. Katya, maybe you can you can speak to this. But I mean, you know, bustiers and thigh highs and negligees and you know, sexy women's clothing is such a normal part of sexuality for people. But we don't really have that same industry around men. We don't have sexy fashion for, for the boudoir for men, at least not, not around se- straight men. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. And, and at right. least, at yeah. least not to the degree that we do with, with women stuff. So that whole idea of however we dress these fantasy characters, it plays off of that fashion that actually exists. I mean, we, we already associate those ideas with sexuality. So no matter how we dress these characters, it taps into that. Well, and also like, at least, like most of the things you just listed are also things that are traditionally associated until relatively recently in sort of terms of uh, fashion history uh, with strippers. Right. Yeah. Burlesque dancers. And like, so like, like, like things like, like thigh high boots, like, like the idea, I remember, I remember one point I was wearing even just like knee high boots that were like not scandalous, like with jeans over. And I remember like my, my great grandmother raising some eyebrows. Um, So, but, but in like bustiers, like are, are, yeah. they come from lingerie. And so like, there are often things that are not meant to be seen. So I think it's also, it's not necessarily just that she's wearing a short, short skirt or she's wearing these shoes, but they're, they're often, and not always, right. but a lot of superhero designs, like I'm just looking at the Zatanna cover that we have on the blog post, like the thigh high boots, the fishnets and everything. Mm-hmm. There are things that are associated with a particular, like particular kinds of women, which we're generally taught not to have positive associations yeah. with. Yeah. 
And those are sort of like the language of most comic book superheroes. Mm-hmm. Hannah, do you have a view on that? Yeah, well, you know, when I think about She-Ra and the current complaints about her redesign, I think about Wonder Woman, which I know you've discussed a bit on the blog. But uh, there was actually an unaired pilot um, from 2011 yeah. of a Wonder Woman reboot. Adrian Flecky, I have also talked yeah. about Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's probably for the best that it did not air. It probably is. But, <laughs> but you know, as, as someone who grew up watching the old Linda Carter reruns with my mom and reading mm-hmm. Wonder Woman comics and then like watching as they've tried and failed and then like tried and succeed to reboot Wonder Woman in different ways uh, throughout my childhood and young adulthood and older adulthood. Uh, you know, oh. like what, what actually like sticks out to me is that a lot of the concerns are not necessarily about, you know, how like Wonder Woman's backstory will be incorporated or what her like character is or what era it will yeah. be set in, but about her yeah. costume. Right. Uh, the biggest mm-hmm. complaints about the 2011 pilot were about her costume and whether or not it was one patriarch enough from like Fox news. Uh, but I mean like it's Fox news, so whatever. And two, like from, you know, like fanboys on the internet who were like, you gave her pants. Why did you give no, her? Yes. Uh, Next they're going to give her pockets. And then, but you know, yeah, let's not get crazy. We <laughs> all know no, no, no pockets for you. <laughs> Women can't have pockets. If you had pockets, you wouldn't know what to do with them. You'd be like, what, what, why are these holes in my pants? They're, and they and don't you all have purses. Through. So I don't it's understand. not like you need them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we are joking. Everyone yes, knows. this is a joke. I was going to say, I was like, we should really screenshot the facial expressions that we're having. Just for, just for context, Wayne and Mav are in one room. Katya and Hannah are in another room in different states. Because apparently we had to do the Boys Club, Girls Club thing for this episode. It was great. And I'm, I'm wearing overalls with real pockets right now. And I just have to say, they are they are great. Ooh, I'm wearing I'm, a dress. so I I'm wearing thigh highs and a bustier, so... <laughs> I know. I, I really thought about grossing in a way that was thematically I'm, appropriate today. I'm in a I'm in a little pink nighty. I don't know what you're talking about. So. I'm always in a pink nighty. It's fine. One would hope. <laughs> yeah, but to 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 rewind to rewind from pink oh, oh, nighties. There's, there's that awkward pause again. <laughs> Back to Wonder Woman. Um, you know, even. Though, like, uh, the new Gal Gadot Wonder Woman has a more, I don't want to say traditional costume, but, you know, a costume more in line with what certain people would expect with the kind of leotardy thing. It looks very superhero-y. It it looks very superhero It's what you would expect from a Wonder Woman, though they might put a spin on it. Uh, Still, people have complained that Gal Gadot herself is not Wonder Woman-esque. And the way they describe her body is similar to what you've said about She-Ra yep. and it's just like her black yep. boobs because apparently you know no. like I mean, not that she lacks them but like they're like they're, yeah, they're, I, they're, I, 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 I looked at a picture of Gal Gadot and I was like eh. no not because <laughs> I want to give a little bit of backstory there because what happened there was actually unfortunate in Gal Gadot's case I wouldn't say it's just the internet fanboys who caused this. A lot of the backlash, uh, I paid attention to it when it was going down. A lot of the initial backlash for Gal Gadot before she ever actually stepped foot on stage or in the costume or anybody saw it. She was just announced as cast. Some of the original complaints came from Ronda Rousey, who I enjoy because I'm a fan of fighting, but she had been actively campaigning for the role Mm. and she did not get it. 
And she very much floated on the internet the idea that this was stupid. Why are they casting this beauty queen? Clearly Wonder Woman should be someone tough. Clearly Wonder Woman should be someone that you could believe her. Basically, she was complaining that it wasn't her. Yeah, right. And now, to be fair, the reason that Gal Gadot was cast and not Ronda Rousey (laughs) is I have seen both of them act. One of them is good at it. The other is Ronda Rousey. (laughs) So she was not prepared to star in this blockbuster role. And that was a problem. She complained about Godot's appearance and Godot shot back with, honey, I was special forces in the Israeli armed (laughs) military. I, I think I'll be okay. And I've been doing Fast and Furious movies longer than you have and she's fine she's great in it she rocked it she's the only thing good about that first movie and the movie that she's in by herself is the best of them so it's not that she couldn't do it it was a complaint that was sort of unfair and i think people hopped on top of it and then in her case i think the fanboys oh well she's hot so they just sort of fell in line in a way that like i don't know that they would have otherwise but then a lot of the people who didn't like that wonder woman movie were essentially just complaining that, well, there's a girl kicking butt and that, well, that's that's, not fair. To rewind (laughs) a little bit, I think it's really interesting that like, because I think in some ways that like the sort of fight between the actress, the would-be actress is kind of illustrates, I think, part of why people get so worked up about this and part of why also like defeminizing superheroes is a problem because you just brought up like Gal Gadot was in Special Forces, but everyone's picking on her for not looking tough enough because I'm just looking at the picture of her like as Wonder Woman and like, I mean, part of it is because she's in the costume, she's in her moment and whatever. Like she looks tough to me, but she does look also like feminine. And like the, mm-hmm. the similarities even between She-Ra's like 1.0's costume and the Wonder Woman costume th- that is in that reboot are not completely far off. And so I think part, I mean, that, I think this is part of what happens when we start having this obsession with wanting superheroes to look a certain way is that it becomes, it becomes the idea that anyone who doesn't look that specific way is no longer legitimately like could be a superhero or could be powerful or could be taken seriously. And I would argue that goes the other way as well. If every superhero was covered from head to toe. So we, we, so on the blog I used as the examples, I used the, the redesigns by, I think his name's Michael Lunsford. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I like several of those and some of them I do not like because I don't think it matches the idea of the character, but it was very clear to me. And I chose Lunsford, by the way, because of all the people that I've seen attempt that project, I like his art the best. That's the reason I chose him. So it's not a complaint. I happen to be a fan of his style. I've seen other people do this. There were a lot of redesigns of uh, just to name some superheroine characters that people might know who are listening. The rescue armor rescue is pepper pots as an Iron Man character who essentially she looks like Iron Man, but with boobs. So several people have tried to redesign the costume by essentially flattening out the chest plate. So because why should the armor have boobs? And you know what? Honestly, there's no reason that it needs to. It has boobs so that you can tell her apart from Iron Man. That's the reason. That was literally the only reason they did that. And it makes her look more feminine. So they said, but there's no reason she has to look feminine. And there isn't. But there's no reason she can't. Right. Because if I'm going to have a giant robot suit as a lady, I want to have a lady robot suit. And that's okay. (laughs) And you shouldn't be forced to. So to look at the alternative, I very much enjoy Gwendolyn Christie's character on Game of Thrones. And when she's in armor, you don't know she's male or female and because it doesn't matter. And that's part of that character. But to say that it has to be that way 
is weird. And then I used the example on the blog of the two characters where it seems very, very odd are Vampirella and Zatanna. Yeah. Vampirella, especially. Right. Like they've attempted, Wayne, you work in the store. In the last five years, there's been off the top of my head, at least three attempts to put Vampirella in costumes mm-hmm. to essentially yeah. put her in more clothes. And the sales dive because no one's reading Vampirella except for people who want to see a half naked vampire lady. That's the essence of the character. <laughs> there's nothing more yeah. to the story. Right. I'm like, yeah, I haven't read a lot of Vampirella, but isn't that like part of like, I don't want to say the joke, but sort of. Yeah, sort of. Okay, and I'm looking at the Lunsford redesigns, and like, especially Vampirella looks. I, I agree with you, Matt. It's very weird because even if you had kept kept like the redesign on this, so like for just to describe it, it's like a long sleeve red tunic with like what looks like mm-hmm. either gray skinny jeans, tight something like that, boots, and like she's wearing these gloves. So not only are like she's covered to the wrist, but even below the wrist, and then the tunic itself has a high collar. And like, had you even kept the pants and the shoes the same and swapped out like the red shirt for like a crop top? I would have bought that. I would have been mm-hmm. great. Cool. Cause guess, cause like that's a thing that I would imagine a young woman wearing. Yeah. It's not an unattractive outfit. I would totally ask that woman out in a bar. I question your fashion sense hardcore. <laughs> no, I'm not saying I didn't say it was my favorite outfit, but she doesn't look ugly. No, I mean, all of them look interesting, but yeah. Except Wonder Woman. I, I, I take, issue with his Wonder Woman design, which is later because I felt it looked yeah. sloppy. Yeah. But, but Vampirella is somebody who essentially wears a string bikini while hunting her prey. Right. And this costume looks like a, a hipster. Right. She's a hipster in a coffee well, shop. Well, the thing is, especially, it's like you could have covered her up more and made her look more if you wanted to go for realistic or more covered up. Like there was a way to do it in a way that could have retained the sexiness of the character. Mm-hmm. And this was not entirely yeah. it. He didn't want to show skin on any character because he did eight redesigns and every single one of them, the only exposed skin is in their face. And that was the choice that he made. And uh, by the way, like, for for instance, his Supergirl costume, I think it's perfect. And I like why that's not in the book. I don't understand. I think I actually think it looks great. And his, you know, his electric costume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I buy that. So there's some. But then his Wonder Woman costume, I just think looks stupid. He was just piling clothes on top of her. And it looks like like I don't it, it looks like a child dressed her to me. Well, especially it looks like she has she looks like she has like a guy from a cell phone agency's like khakis put underneath her Wonder Woman shoes, like underneath the Wonder Woman outfit. Yeah. It's not boots on. Yeah. Boots on top of men's trousers right. with a skirt on top of those. And then a armored, uh, I guess, breastplate it's on top of <laughs> it. It's too cumbersome. And, it, and, I was, and I think there's a way to design that feminized and sexy and still powerful, mm-hmm. i.e. Gal Gadot. Right. And there's a way to design it appropriate for seven-year-old girls without showing skin, i.e. DC superhero girls, which I think is a brilliant version of the costume. And I also put it on the blog. So I think you can do it without it looking like you're trying too hard. And this is the part where I'm going back. I question your taste about fashion. The, I mean, the thing, I think the other thing that we're talking, we're not talking about is not all of the, the images that you pull, but a lot of them, they're women designed by men. And when I look at yes, like absolutely. when I look at these three redesigns, I like it's not so much that they're poor, it's not that they're poorly designed or that well thought out. It's they all look like a men's concept of how a woman yeah. would dress covered up. Because when I look absolutely. at this, Agreed. I I appreciate some of these, and then some of these I would like. I have never seen a woman wearing any approximation yeah. of that, nor can I imagine yeah. one. Zatanna. <laughs> uh, I mean, Zatanna. I've seen women dress yeah. like that, but like it's it's it. Like I think Mavi referenced this, it's a different person yeah. than who yeah, Zatanna right. is. Like, especially with Vampirella, like the same person who was Vampirella in the comic book would never dress like that. And I think that's like part of what feels gross about this is that like when we're talking about these costume redesigns and we're talking about how women are being dressed, is it's like we're not actually thinking about 
the female character, Hannah, I think you brought this up. Like when we, when we reboot Wonder Woman, we don't care about her backstory yeah. being incorporated all the stuff. We care about how she looks, which is also kind of the like, insidious part of this entire conversation of, yes, it's important for women to not be like constantly sex pots, but it's also important that this is not the only conversation we're having. Well, and, and, and that's it. What's true to these characters, the history of who, the, who these characters are. And there's certainly reboots and different versions and, and different universe versions of them. But the idea of comics being such a visual media the costumes are iconic. They say something about who the character is, male, female, whatever. There's there's a silhouette to the costume that you should be able to recognize. There, there's design elements. There's insignia. So there's that element of personality that comes through in what they're wearing that's conveyed by what they're wearing. And if you stray too far from that design, are they still that character? And I would say no. Yeah, and, and that's it. Like here, here in real life, we can all wear wherever we want. We're still the same people. Mm-hmm. Although I'd make the argument that we all dress in different ways for different settings and, you know, all Absolutely. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that gets into the mask theory and all that stuff that we keep saying we got to talk about. Just because we were using Zatanna, in Zatanna's most recent book, one of the things that's inter- interesting is, you know, she's always been more of a background character, but mm-hmm. in her in her solo book, she's not dressed that way all the time. She's yeah. dressed that way when she's on stage performing, right. and it's she's dressed that costume. way when she's superheroing. Right. Yeah, when she's eating breakfast, she's wearing jeans, right? You know, because that's right. what she would like do. a normal person, right? Yeah. Right. Now, well, actually, to be fair, I think probably m- normal people are more likely to eat breakfast in their underwear than they are to go outside that way. Okay, but fair, but but she does because she doesn't have a secret identity. Zatanna Zatara is who she is. But when she's not performing or catching bad guys, she wears clothing. Now she wears very, I, I wouldn't say super sexy, but she's kind of nouveau gothy. Is yeah. that fair, Wayne? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but. She's not dressing in her underwear she, the way that dressed, she does. She's not dressed like Death from Sandman, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that's exactly what when Wayne says, you know, the characters we recognize by their costume, because that's a trope of superhero uh, of superhero comics. Um, One of my one of my biggest problems with a book that I enjoy, which is uh, uh, the the reboot of Captain Marvel, is the character of Carol Danvers is unrecognizable from the previous iteration of that character. And I understand why it was done. But it's a different character. It's a different costume. It's a different haircut. Her personality is different. So for all intents and purposes, it's a brand new character, which is odd to me. Why not just do a different character as opposed to the new Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, which I love because it's a different character because it's a different character. So so you can make these decisions and I think you can update characters. I think you can. My character, the the Hawkeye thing, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye was was fantastic. He's very different than the Hawkeye who was leading Thunderbolts 20 years ago or the one who was in Avengers 40 years ago, I could draw a line and see this as a natural progression, a natural progression. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he's very different in, in lots of ways. Um, so, yeah. Well, you know, back to Wonder Woman, um, as Katya said, you know, Gal Gadot's costume does look a lot like She-Ra's one, like She-Ra 1.0's costume. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big reasons why I, I, I mean, I honestly have never really had a problem with Wonder Woman's costume period in the iterations I have seen of Wonder Woman because I have not felt that the male gaze, like, like you know, Wonder Woman does not exist solely for the male gaze. Right. She is, she is an active character doing active things, uh, at times resisting, like, heteronormativity and mm-hmm. obviously, like, with her backstory – patriarchy in general in different ways and i don't think it i don't think like you know it's necessarily about like sexy or not or 
you know, if you show so much skin or certain aspects of like your body, then you are, you know, you're, you're going too far or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's about, you know, you right. the character it's about has the character. agency. So yeah. it, it's, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel gross. Cause or, I think yeah. like, that's the thing that often feels yeah. like, this is what you're like, you're saying, yes. right? Like yeah. it feels gross. Like the, co- it's not that the costume in itself is gross. Is it's, it's gross. If it feels on, a, if it's on a character, yeah. that that's the only reason she's there. I mean, to, to, mm-hmm. you know, use a current example, um, of a character that is, fairly covered in comparison to Wonder Woman, the Wasp from the new Ant-Man and the Wasp movie. Um, mm-hmm. And Javine Lilly's uh, Van Dyne is, you know, has a very practical costume that I could actually, if we were to imagine the very realistic world of superheroes, you know, I could, just, <laughs> I could, I could see that costume being, you know, semi-functional. And, mm-hmm. and yet, like, you know, she and Wonder Woman have, I think, a lot in common because they're both very active characters. Evangeline Lilly spent a lot of time working with the filmmakers to make sure that the character didn't turn into a stereotype or a school marm. Mm-hmm. And she had her own storyline and her own actions, her own agency. And she, like, was able to hold her own against Scott. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, don't, I think, like, you know, like, the costume doesn't necessarily matter. It, it matters, like, what... It's like you the do. larger con- it's yeah. like the larger context and the character as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Just for a sense of historical perspective on Wonder Woman and, and her costume, I'm pulling this out of I did a, a history of Wonder Woman lecture that I did at a dozen libraries in the last year. And I so I'm just gonna read this straight from my my notes. She first appeared in Sensation Comics in January of nineteen forty two. Two months later, in March of nineteen forty two, Sensation Comics was put on the list of Comics disapproved for youth by the National Organization for Decent <laughs> National Organization for Decent Literature. When asked why by DC Comics, their response was she is not sufficiently dressed. What was the original <laughs> costume? Because I remember there was a period, like an early period of Wonder Woman where she's wearing like a knee-length skirt or something. Yeah, the, 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 it yes. would be a knee-length skirt. Yeah, it would be a knee-length skirt. Yeah, that's the one they're talking about. That was the original one? Okay. Yeah. What year was that? 1942. January 42. That's- it's not always clear because it's always so bunched up. But in if you actually read it, the knee-length skirt is a split skirt. It's shorts. It's wide yeah. legs shorts, essentially. So that, oh. it, 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 so that her underwear never show if yeah, she's upside bloomers. down. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, because that's also inter- like weird because it wasn't uncommon to have skirts that were de- like around your knees in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. maybe it's just because she's running around and occasionally like flies up a little bit and then you see the undershorts. Yep. And, and, no, you don't. You don't. You, you never, never do. do. Not ever. <laughs> and you, you, she does. She does have the bustier shoulders. On. Oh, yeah. that's probably it. It's not the skirt. OK. Yeah, she, she is not sufficiently <laughs> dressed. So disapprove yes. for youth. Okay. Well, fair. Well, but there I mean, are, and there are moments, I mean, in the history, if you want to go through the history of the one of Wonder Woman, and this is a different show, yeah. but there are dark, there are dark times oh my. in Wonder Woman. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, Didn't she have like a thong at one point. Yes. Yeah. There are, the, there's the, the vong of the, there's the vong of the nineties. There's the, long. Yeah. Yeah. There's the late sixties where she gives yeah. up her powers so that she can marry Steve Trevor and then he is promptly killed an issue later. So then she's just got a couple of years where she's running around doing martial arts and wearing designing suit. clothes and talking about how she doesn't really like women that much. That it yeah. was, <laughs> it was, it was that I would be sort of okay with living that life. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, well, it, it was a very, it, it essentially becomes a spy book with very little relation to the original and, title. And, and, they were and, playing off the British version of the Avengers with uh, Mr. Yes. Steed and Mod Squad. Yeah. 
Got yeah, it. she was she was half Mod Squad, half Emma Peel from yeah. the Avengers. And that went that was actually reversed due to the efforts of Now Magazine and Gloria yeah, Stein. And uh, the her creator's wife. Uh, and I've done this presentation a dozen times and right now my mind's going blank. Um, William yeah, Marston is um, the creator. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Holloway. Holloway. Elizabeth Holloway was still alive at the time, and she wrote letters to DC yeah. Comics yeah. at the time, saying, "You took away her powers. What's wrong with you?" So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, there were dark times in Wonder Woman, but overall, I agree with Hannah. What she's popular for isn't just being a sex yeah. symbol, despite that night, despite that nineties look, where, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, from issue to issue her panties got smaller yeah. and smaller. Yeah. I blocked um, that until, from my memory. <laughs> until they got to the point where it was just like, hey, she's wandering around in a thong. Why isn't anybody complaining about this? And that happened over a course of about a year. <laughs> There's a similar story, the creation of the character Power Girl. Power Girl was recently redesigned for the new 52. Power Girl, her traditional costume is a white leotard with a massive boob window and she has, depending on the artist, somewhere between double D and quadruple D boobs. She is very top heavy. And what was interesting about her, the way that happened was, I can't remember which artist it was, Wayne, you might remember. There was a point in the late 70s, early 80s, where from issue to issue, they just her costumes always had a boob yeah. window on it. Um, and that was just the way the costume looked. And... From issue to issue, the window got bigger and her yeah. boobs got bigger because the artist was trying to see how long he could do it before people complained. He just wanted to see how long he could get, get away with it. I would also just like to point out that I forgot what character this was until you said boob window. And I was like, oh, I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Power Girl. Yes. Yes. And that, well, it's what she's the, yeah, it's the definitive look for Power right, Girl. It's the, it's the thing you remember about that character. Yes. Well, he made her boobs bigger and bigger. I mean, she was a relatively average comic book character at first, which means C cups. And then every issue, yeah, larger and larger until she was massively boobalicious. And then he just said, okay, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do it anymore. And that became her look. My favorite explanation they gave for that. This was sometime 15 years ago. This is ridiculous because she's, she's <laughs> Superman's cousin or whatever that current incarnation was. And she's trying to live mm -hmm. up to his legacy. Someone asked her why she didn't wear the S shield like like he did. And it's because I'm not worthy. So my costume doesn't have the shield on it. So instead, I'm showing a lot of cleavage. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I took yeah. the S shield <laughs> off and that's what was there. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's never been a good reason for it. But what was interesting about it, and I never thought about this until the redesign over the years, I've seen women cosplay as Power Girl at cons. I've gone to many, many comic book conventions and a lot of people think the costume nobody can. Nobody looks like that. Absolutely. Yeah. There are women like that. There are women who have large breasts and it's a common costume for women with large breasts and not just women who are, you know, tiny waisted look like supermodel women like Power Girl. It is a common cosplay costume for large bosomed women in general. And when George Perez redesigned the costume, he took her cup size back down for New 52 and he put her in a much more reasonable, full, full leotard, not showing anything costume, which he thought would be more appealing. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, oh, the, the geeks are going to complain about this. And they did. But what was interesting was women complained about it, specifically women who were large chested would say shy of Superman. She was the strongest character in DC. And the one that I could look up to, why is she not allowed to look like me anymore? 
mm-hmm. which is an interesting take because it's the exact opposite of what you said. Now, I mean, yes, we think of all these characters as sexualized because it is uh, something that we're aware of because of the male gaze. But if you are on the larger side and you really only have one character who really does have that look, it becomes an odd thing of this was mine. Leave me alone. Yeah. And so they had to put it back. <laughs> they eventually just relented and she's she's back to that look now. So the reason I brought this up is because I don't care about the, you know, the 4chan, the Reddit complaint of she looks too manly. She doesn't. She looks like she looks like an athletic 16 year old girl. She looks like we we, we put up I put a picture of Gabby Douglas um, yeah. in on. the And she looks like, you know, she looks like a gymnast. She looks like an Olympic gymnast. She looks strong and it's what Noelle Stevenson wants. And it's a good look. I had comments from two people, from my wife, who was on the show last week, and also from, I believe, Nicole Aceto said they, they both made the comment that what their problem with it was they liked the costume. They liked the new Shira costume. They said if they had a complaint, it's that Shira looks like a little girl to them mm-hmm. and not like them. Now, these are both middle-aged women. This is not a cartoon for middle-aged women. It's a cartoon for seven-year-old girls. And they both acknowledged that. They said, you know, I'm not the target audience, but if I were going to watch this, I would want someone more womanly, meaning who looks like an adult mm-hmm. instead of a kid. And that's a reasonable complaint. So I'm wondering, how do we reconcile that? Can there be a character that is targeted both ways as a female, as an eight-year-old or 10-year-old or however old I was when that cartoon was on? I never looked at He-Man and said, well, this sucks. I'm not 3% body fat, six foot four. And, you know, like I, I never had that thought. I was able to associate with him. And I understand that that experience might be different for girls, for young girls. I don't know if it is or not. I don't know if young girls can look up to an adult woman. I believe they can. Yeah. I mean, I just think, think thinking back to, I mean, even Wonder Woman, since we've been talking about her a lot, like I remember being a little kid and being like, yeah, Wonder Woman's a badass. I'm going to be Wonder Woman mm-hmm. when they grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, I think actually seeing adult role models in media for women is, at least in my experience and Hannah, like feel free to jump in at any point, but like complicated because mm-hmm. on the one hand, like, yeah, we want to like, look, we want, we want to do the same thing that I feel like a lot of boys do is like, look up to our older selves and be like aspirational. Like, look what I'm going to do when I'm like, whatever age this character I imagine to be. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, because I think there is so much of a history of sexualization of adult female characters, that becomes really complicated because like, I don't necessarily like when I, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I didn't necessarily want to look up to the character who was mainly there to be a sex object. Which, right. is why, which is why Wonder Woman was great because it's sort of like she could look like a woman, she could look like a sexy woman and an attractive woman that like I might want to be, but she's also a badass and like, you know, putting people in headlocks. So you kind of get both things there. Whereas like, I think a lot of female characters don't have that. And especially like talking about like why I think media targeted towards younger girls. So like She-Ra 2.0 tends to be younger girls more often, I think. Mm-hmm. Is because even things like Sailor Moon come to mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, is because it's it's harder for them to put it. It's harder for creators, I think, or maybe people like to deal with putting adult women in roles where young girls will be watching because adult women tend to be sexualized in media. So in order to make mm-hmm. it child appropriate, you like I think they sort of fall back on the idea that we're going to have this younger woman who would it would be completely inappropriate mm-hmm. to sexualize in that way. So, like, I guess it's like for me, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's like a yes and no thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And you know, uh, not to you know share stories from my childhood, but 
to share a moment from my childhood, um, as a a child of the nineties, um, I spent a lot of my childhood watching Sailor Moon. Um, and you know, Sailor Moon is Sailor Pluto forever. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Sailor Moon too. Anyway, uh, you know, like Sailor Moon (laughs) is a, like, was really like, you know, the first like young female superhero character that I was introduced to outside of Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the thing about Sailor Moon is, is that she was supposed to be just a little bit older than me at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a teenager, but if you look at her in costume, most of the time in how she's drawn, she does not look, I mean, like all women's spies are different, but she did not look like I did when I was a teenager. (laughs) And you know, like a lot of, I, I mean, this is not about superheroes, but a lot of the Disney Channel shows and the, like shows with teenagers on TV cast people who were in their 20s in teenage female roles. And mm-hmm. I would look at them and I'd be like, well, why don't I look like that? Is there something wrong with me? I look like I'm a child. So like, I think there is a benefit to like having She-Ra 2.0 look the way she does because it, it's, you know, it's someone that people who are that age can kind of relate to physically in a lot of ways, even as women do mature. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. I mean like even like the new Disney um, princess Moana, like she looks like a teenager. Um, If if that, is she even a teenager? If that, like she looks like, she looks like a preteen teenager. Yeah. And, and that, that's really cool because I kept waiting to look like all the Disney princesses from before, uh, you know, Milan basically, and it never happened. And it was like, Oh, okay. Bummer. People don't look like that. <laughs> uh, well, and also I think, I mean, I don't know that Bab, I think you mentioned like the, the age demographic of the new She-Ra is supposed to be like young women, like young girls. So like seven to eight. We're speculating. Okay. Noah Stevenson has not said exactly. I am speculating based on, the visual style she uses, which to be fair is, is the way she draws, but also like, I know where yeah. Lumberjanes is targeted. Right. Lumberjanes is an all ages comic. And I wouldn't hire Noelle Stevenson if I were looking to do something for 40 year old men. That's just, she's not the right, right. Yeah. She's yeah. not the right showrunner. And the thing is, so if we assume like the age demographic here is girls, so specifically like maybe I'm thinking like girls like, you know, the same the same age I was when I was watching Sailor Moon, yeah, like 10, between 10 and 13, is that actually for them, they are looking at somebody who looks older. Like mm-hmm. to me, this character looks like, I mean, just thinking about like the comparison we keep talking about, like her body type is very similar to an, uh, an Olympian. So she actually looks like somebody in her late teens or her 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they worked out every day. Right, exactly. Which, like, she's a superhero running around doing superhero things. So, like, I believe that. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think it's also like they. If if I was watching this at ten, like, I would be like, oh yeah, this is what I'm going to be like when I grow up. It's just a different way of looking. That, like, yes, like to me, she actually doesn't look particularly like infantilized, or she just looks. She looks like a young woman. It's that the the body type that she has is associated with an age demographic, regardless of whether that's accurate. I know many adult women that look like this. Absolutely. And so I want to rewind slightly to one of the things that, that Hannah was talking about. I think there's a conscious choice that Stevenson and other creators make. If we make the characters younger, we can avoid the sexualization issue. 
I don't know that I believe that. I think it's a, I think it's a, a decision that people are sort of making error. And it is what I call the Powerpuff Girls principle. The idea behind making the Powerpuff Girls is we can make strong female characters who are badass and it will be impossible to sexualize them because they're four or five or however old they're supposed to be. They lack sexual characteristics altogether. They don't even have fingers and people, and this will all, this will all be about just making the girls tough. And of course, if you look on the internet, people have sexualized the Powerpuff Girls. It is mm-hmm. not even hard to find sometimes to better effect than other times. Not only have they sexualized Powerpuff Girls, rule 34 of the internet, there's sexualized My Little Pony. If you make a comic book character, a comic strip character, an animated character, someone on the internet wants to fuck that character. That's just a rule. Just be okay with it. You're not going to change that. So I think even looking at the fan art right now, because we're in the middle of the controversy, most of the fan art that is being produced of She-Ra 2.0 is very much in the spirit of Oh, yeah, you know, girl power. I want this to be tough. However, just to look at them, some of them definitely are moving more towards a more and more sexualized image than others. And Stevenson's obviously not going to do that. That's not what she does. But even the original She-Ra costume, it's not that sexy. It looks like what was happening in 80s fashion, a friend of mine sent me some texts and this is a question for Katia. She said, what's mm-hmm. the history of fashion in the 80s? Because yeah. what she noted, and she sent me some texts of just like she'd Googled some pictures. I said she was dressed like an ice skater, but she's not. She's dressed like a woman from the flash dance aesthetic. She's, yeah. she's dressed very much like a jazzercise or I mean, high heels aside. She's dressed very much like what you would see in jazzercise or in flash dance. You, you've got the little skirt over a leotard. And that's that was a workout look at that time. So the more sexualized images that I posted from the fan art, that's how people remember it. But I don't think most of these people have watched this cartoon in 30 years. Her butt wasn't hanging out. I have watched it recently. You don't see lots of panty shots. You see far more in Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. So in Sailor Moon, it was was known for for what we call fan service in, in the in the anime and manga world. Shira didn't really have that. We remember it because this is a different concept that Katya and I were discussing offline. Fet- sexual fetishization in men tends to be based and to a lesser extent women, but especially in young men tends to be based on what you were experiencing when you sort of hit puberty. So you will find a way to sexualize anything just based on who was the hot character in my mind, for instance, Daisy Duke, uh, Princess Leia in the steel bikini. Yeah. There, those are, those are things that were around when I was of age to start noticing girls, but it doesn't really matter what that thing is. So a boy who's 10 and watching She-Ra now, if this show lasts three years, he's going to think that girls who wear split skirts over biker shorts are really, really hot. That's just how it works. And as he grows up, when he's 30 and making fan art, he's going to have super sexy pictures of... That's still what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what will happen, which is why you see the sexualized images of She-Ra now. So I don't know that it's going to work, but I appreciate what she's trying to do. And this is why I like the costume redesign. It's not necessarily about her making her not sexy, but I'm even just looking at the fan art is like the pieces of fan art in which the 2.0 costume is portrayed as more sexy. Like the shorts are shorter. There's like Mm -hmm. the upskirt kind of shot. They're being done in a way that 
looks more empowering versus mm-hmm. the 1.0 fan art looks much more like pinups, like mm-hmm. where she's actually like contorted in ways that would make sense that make her like breasts and her ass look larger mm-hmm. and like all kinds of things. And so I think it's like, I mean, I know we've talked about this several times, but it's like, it's not just about the fact that she's wearing a particular thing. It's about the way the overall character is being mm-hmm. presented. Now, to be fair, they've had 30 years. Oh, absolutely. And the 2.0 artists have had a week and a half. Right. But to go back to the idea of like the 80s fashion, I mean, yeah, no, it totally looks like athletic wear. I mean, I I talked about the 20s mainly because that was the first thing that came to mind. And I wanted to talk a little bit about like there is a really I mean, there's a long tradition in a lot of eras of like masculine and like quote unquote masculine styles or masculine appearances being appropriated by women's Mm -hmm. fashion in ways that aren't defeminizing in ways that aren't like anti-sexy and i wanted to talk about that a little bit and sort of like there is an alternate history to this and the flappers as you talk about right and i think especially i mean it's kind of interesting for me to like juxtapose the history like uh the history of fashion and representation the history of comic books and representation because i mean comic books traditionally are marketed towards men women's clothing for reasons that should be obvious is marketed towards women for men often right right no and exactly that means that the male the male gaze is not that doesn't mean that the male gaze is absent but it's being filtered through women's desires so basically you'll often see in fashion advertising especially from like the 40s and the 50s you'll see like them like showing a particular clothing style or a particular like especially in cosmetics it's specifically sort of like men looking at women and so women are supposed to desire that dress or that shade of lipstick because men are going to look at them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So that's not saying that the male gaze or like male, like male sexual desire is not part of women, the women's fashion history, but it is still about you have to make the women want that rather than you are making the men want that. So it's mm-hmm. still a different sort of position where the women has to, the woman has to want to choose that thing. It's male gaze by proxy. Right. Malvi would call it placing the woman in a position of, of narcissism. I believe is not how she phrases it, Hannah. It's um, scopophilia for the men, pleasure in looking narcissism for the women, pleasure in being looked at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I think that puts, and then like, I mean, so just to recap the blog post a little bit, I talk about flappers mainly because so, I mean, of course, women, women got the right to vote in the twenties and sort of that in, in actually, and this is not just true in the United States. This is true in many cultures where women start to get, um, especially the vote, more political power. You start to see that they start dressing more like men and they start appropriating men's style. This also happens in China around the same period. I forget the name of the dynasty that falls in like the teens, but, uh, this, a, very, a similar thing happens with certain aspects of uh, female dress in China. Mm-hmm. And so this is really common, but I want, like, I think the thing to highlight though, is that these women are choosing that and they're specifically choosing it in a way that isn't trying to hide anything. And it often is actually counter to that. So like everyone, like sort of like famously, like hemlines got shorter in the flapper era, not in the way that Halloween costumes are. No. They did not wear <laughs> mini skirts. They're like flashing calves. Miniskirt's like a 50s invention or late 50s, isn't it? No, that's the 60s. It's po- it's popularized in the 60s. I just remember, no, I mean, even even starting, it's like, it's way later than anybody thinks it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a lay fashion historian, mainly just because I sew a lot, but like the miniskirt is mainly a 60s thing. 50s is more like full ballroom skirts. Oh, um, no, I, I, mean, I meant when it was even invented. I, I mean, I don't think it was oh, even yeah. invented till like think, 58 or something like that. Like there's a- Yeah, it's, I think it like is in a runway show. There's like miniskirts on a runway show in like the in, very in like Paris 50s or something. possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And, but like in the twenties, like basically it was like, like very 
risque. You would like actually put blush on your knees so that men would see your knees. It's very exciting. So things <laughs> things to think about. But and to my point from earlier, as the you know the flappers start happening in the twenties, like the more that happens because of the way we sexualize things, the boys who are becoming pubescent at that time that becomes their ideal woman and it to where it needs to sort of reverse in order to be risque again. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think of, I don't know. I mean, again, this it's, there's also a war in there, which complicates things. Um, right. 1945 I mean, has other problems. 42, 45. Right. That makes it complicated. And it's also, I mean, again, because of the sort of like, you have to, you have to present a, a, a version of female sexuality that women want to buy, even if they're buying it because men like it mm -hmm. kind of makes that complicated. Because the thing is, is bobbed hair becomes less common. Um, right. It goes into the twenties into the, and into the thirties. So if you're arguing like, you know, men in their, you know, young men, say like 12 in the twenties, it, by the time they're adult men, bobbed hair is not that common. So I don't know that we can say that fashion follows that. Well, see, I don't know, because if they're tw if they're 12 in 1925, then in 1935, they're 22. So by the time it's dying out. But I guess that the thing, though, is like I'm hesitant to conflate like male adolescent desires with cycles in fashion, because part of that is that the way that the fashion that's like the cycles actually, I would, I mean, I would argue that the cycles of, of like male sexuality have more to do with how fashion cycles have changed than the reverse. Oh yeah. 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 I don't think they cause it. I think that 15 year old boys are always chasing whoever was hot when they were 15. Yeah. And, and even if fashion changes around them, you know, you're, you're 30 or 40 or whatever, that fashion is not happening, but you're still attracted to that style, w whether it's happening around you or right. not. Yeah. Sure. Sure, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, that's the thing that like is interesting about the shifts in the twenties. So you beginning having the beginning of the twentieth century, women are actually working in fashion for the first time. Yes. I forget exactly when Coco Chanel because she's like the first, basically the first CEO of fashion. And part of it is also you're seeing the fashion industry mm -hmm. changing, and you're seeing it being actually more female. So you're seeing it more female centered, which is why I think the Shira design is really interesting because I mean, I don't know that necessarily she's pulling from the flappers specifically. And actually to go back to the reader who was talking about the eighties, you see some similar things in the eighties also, also partially as a result of femin uh, feminism. So like just to talk about Shira, like uh 2.0 has like these super intense shoulder pads. Mm -hmm. And so visually what that does is make her much more top heavy. And one of the things I talk about the black, the blog post is if you actually look at the line of her shoulder pads and put her next to the original, uh, He-Man, she's closer in terms of overall body silhouette. And I thought that was really interesting because one of the things that happens in periods where fashion is being more and more influenced by feminism, whether it's the twenties or it's the eighties, you see shoulder pads, you see more boyish silhouettes, you see the waist become de-emphasized and things like that. So whether it's an intentional reference or not, like visually she's pulling on a bunch of different eras where there's sort of elements taken from menswear or elements that are trying to basically play with women's like forms to make them more androgynous specifically as a sort of like feminist visual marker. So I knew shoulder pads were big in the eighties. So shoulder pads are big in the twenties as well. No, it's not that the shoulder pads are big in the twenties. It's that, so like, like the main thing that is associated with the twenties for a lot of people is like basically a very rectangular shape. So okay. basically you have the, we're going to get technical here. You have like drop waist dresses. So what that does is basically it de-emphasizes the curves. It de-emphasizes yeah. the waist. Okay. Right. And so, and there's actually, um, corsetry goes out of fashion in the twenties and there's still like shapewear. They basically wear, if you imagine like a really weird tube sock, 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of what's going on. Bind the breast and slim the figure. Right, yeah. right. The term is usually used to describe the 20s as specifically boyish. And I think there's a conversation we can have around like infantilization that goes on there. Mm-hmm. But it was much more about like what I would call like true androgyny, where it was like a little bit of like, you know, masculine or or maybe less stereotypically feminine uh, aspects of their clothing, but they're still girly. They're wearing dresses. They're wearing mm-hmm. heels. They're like makeup also comes in is becoming more common in this period, more so than others. I think it's a different show, but what you're pointing at here is a, and this, this again becomes prominent in eighties. There is a very specific difference between androgyny and genderless. Oh, absolutely. And not the privilege either over each other, but like they're, but they're different things that are sometimes used interchangeably and aren't really. Right. And I think both flappers and I'm thinking, especially like women's suiting becomes a thing in the eighties with a skirt suit, mm-hmm. um, becomes much more common, especially with the big shoulder pads because power suiting also pantsuit. And neither of those are what like now we would think of as I think is androgynous clothing. They still to our eye look very girly and they were also considered very sexy, even though there are these aspects of masculine dress. So, I mean, yes, I think that androgyny and genderless are different and I don't think either is necessarily unsexy or necessarily sexy. And I think that one of the things that people, when people are doing these redesigns, they're trying to desexualize. I mean, we talked about infant, infant, infantilizing people. That's probably a different show at this point because we're going a little long, but they're attempting to desexualize in a way that I don't know is entirely realistic because of the male gaze issues that Hannah and I were talking about, you're going to have that. Speaking of that, I just noticed I was scrolling through the fan art again. And I just noticed that one of them has strangely like shadow nipples. <laughs> the, the dreaded, the dreaded shadow nipples. I've never experienced this. You know, Shira never had visible nipples at any point. We never had the upskirt shot that, as I said, that's more of a sailor moon thing, but I don't think that show has been regularly watched since 1987. So people just have these memories of her where they visualize her as this stripper character that they've sort of grown up with and like sexualized more and more in in their minds. And in that particular shot, yes, someone went out of their way to draw the shading around her. I mean, I can only assume it's 40 below in that room because she has very, very erect nipples to get that heavy a shadow under it. But what's amazing to that shot about me is they've gone out of their way to make her flared pleated skirt hug the bottom of her butt so as not to do a panty shot in that yes. image. Right. And define, define gravity in the process, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, it, yeah it, there's no, like, her skirt is just hanging into, like, clearly they're trying to sexualize her in that image, and yet they've chosen to demurely cover all crotch and butt. Which is odd to me, and I, I, and that's that's an interesting choice to me. I don't I don't really understand. As opposed to many of the other shots, both of Shira 1.0 and Shira 2.0, even Stevenson's original release shot, um, Katya, you know, one of my problems with it was because people thought I was complaining about it. Right. I didn't like the skirt because in the first shot, the magical wind is blowing the skirt up well beyond where it should do where it should move on any reasonable you know pirouette or spin it's at her it's at her belt level and i imagine she chose that shot just to show people yes we're giving her shorts i will say as the seamstress in the room that is actually not an unrealistic amount of twirl if you have a full skirt which she clearly does continue yeah and it's more clear in other shots that that's what's going on but releasing only that one shot that's a freeze frame that was a specific choice to make. Oh, absolutely. And I thought, well, I don't know. I, like, how much are you going to sexualize it? Because as we were talking about with Sailor Moon, 
Sailor Moon cartoon for 10 year old girls, but all about the fan service panty shots like throughout that entire series. I actually was kind of wondering if that was a specific callback to Sailor Moon in that shot. It might be because I mean, Noel Stevenson's yeah. 26 years old. There's no way she didn't grow up watching that. Right. No. Well, and the thing is, it's like I think for our generation, like Sailor Moon was the first time we for many of us, we saw like, oh, teenage girl being a badass. And like, yes, the like like the upskirts and like all that stuff is like problematic but like that was also a hugely like important cartoon for women i think of the 90s Mm -hmm. yeah and especially like as someone who originally kind of complained about the sexualization of sailor you know like i didn't necessarily think about that all the time watching the show because particularly the original anime show was really about the like relationships between women and i mean the character sailor moon in particular is kind of annoying and the other sailor scouts are better (laughs) i know that's a Oh, shots fired. I know you're going to get hate mail. Are you a Venus girl or a Mars girl? Uh, I'm definitely a Mars girl. Please. <laughs> I actually like Jupiter. Oh, my. That seems right. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a boy. <laughs> but she was my fave. Yo, yo, yo. That's, I don't think that's like necessarily a hot take because, but, but you know, um, <laughs> but later this week we'll have a quiz on the, on the podcast. Which Sailor Scout are you? <laughs> I'm obviously Neptune. Okay, I'm going to let go. Um, But, you know, it it really was about female friendship. And, like, it was nice to see, like, a show that prominently featured women, like, working together actively. And also, like, women were allowed to be heroes and allowed to be villains and allowed to be, like, kind of anti-heroes. And sometimes lesbians. Yes. Well, not in the original English dub, but, yeah, I know. They got there. They, They eventually got there. They eventually redid it. But, you know, it, it was really an important show growing up, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I think... So the upskirt... So, in conclusion... Yeah. yeah. The upskirt I'm shot, the way that's done in this particular context, I'm sort of okay with. Having seen the later picture, I am now on board because, again, the, the um, later picture later on the blog where she released the second image of it, now I buy it because I know, okay, it does move. It is a reasonable... From the shot that it looked like, it looked like when it was hanging flat, it would still be too short for her. And now I see that's not the case. And that's the difference to me. That was really the difference to me. You know, I'm okay with Vampirella existing. I'm okay with there being cartoons that are about sexualization. I'm okay with there being cartoons that are about empowerment for seven-year-old girls. It was weird to me that they, that it felt like they were trying to do both at the same time in a way that I'm like, you're inviting problems. I don't think they're doing that here. I think that you're going to have both. I think you're going to have this cartoon that's for seven-year-old girls. I think people are going to get over it because something else will happen to piss off the internet next week and we will forget about it. 40-year-old men are not going to really watch this cartoon and the ones that do are going to love it. You know, that would be me. And then and then there's going to be, you know, something else that happens that people are going to forget. And then 20 years from now... Someone will be doing a podcast about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and about sexy versions of, you know, the like this will be the class of 2027 hot sexy outfit that people buy at Spencer's. Okay, coming soon to a Spencer's near you. Okay, can our podcast be the thing that pisses off the internet next? I, I, we, we, we could use the traffic. Oh God, I hope oh. so. If you would like to piss off the internet, please PayPal Chris Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing would piss me off more <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that's like next year's April Fools, Fools episode where we just put together an episode with as many statements as we could come up with to piss off the internet and see what sticks. You know, it's been a couple months Listen since to I've Vox gotten Pod, email. Pod, Pod, I know. Let us ruin your childhood. <laughs> I believe 
That's the end of the episode. <laughs> oh, no, it can't be the end of the episode because Wayne has to say something. So we've resolved nothing. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we've resolved nothing. So we've resolved nothing. That is Wayne's catchphrase. We're going to get t-shirts one day that say that. So we've resolved nothing. Boxpodcast.com. Um, Hannah. I'll wear that shirt. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. You're the yeah, newest this, person here. This, this is great. great. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Anna, is there anything that you'd want to promote? A Twitter or Instagram or anything cool? I guess if you want to yell at me or not, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. The palindrome, Hannah. Uh, oh, 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 God. I was just annoying. I did that thing. No, 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 no. That no. Because now I wish I had introduced you that way at the beginning of the show. So next time you're on, you will just be palindrome, Hannah. <laughs> Well, it's better than Hannah Montana. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Don't be that. Oh, that's a, that's a whole different show. Katia, thank you for coming back as always. Hopefully you'll be on more often. Will tell me. <laughs> Thanks, Katia. Where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at justthatnerdkid. Okay, so if you've listened to the show on other times when Katia's on, I make fun of her because you know, I say, you can follow her and you can not see nerdy stuff because you'll see, you know, Katia's typical Instagram posts are me buying fashion, me buying fabric, me putting fabric on dress form, me wearing dress. Me buying fabric. <laughs> me putting fabric on dress form. <laughs> dress. <laughs> is, Wait, no, 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 no. And then they'll be. Then they'll be. I just got a new haircut. Me buying fabric. <laughs> that's, this is, that's ninety-eight percent true. I occasionally post stories about my video game research on, on occasion, but but. I, for one, love Katia's Instagram because I like looking at fashion, as one might have gathered from the last hour of conversation. So, Katia, <laughs> can we assume that if we follow you on Instagram, that there will be a she skirt in our near future? Uh, I don't know. I can see that as gym wear. I can wear the split skirt over, over shorts. We'll see. Actually, I, just, I have some white linen. That could maybe happen. <laughs> So we'll try it out. Yeah, so definitely follow Katia on Instagram at just that nerd kid. And Wayne, hey, thank yes. you as always. Wayne, where can people find you online? Uh Wayne-wise.com, <laughs> pretty much. And, and that's rare these days. <laughs> yeah. And you can follow me at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show at Vox Popcast. You can follow my blog, ChrisMaverick.com, the show's blog, VoxPopcast.com. If you listen to the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Plex or Sound, I don't know, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever we're at. Subscribe, write us reviews. Those are helpful to help people find the show. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our epic theme song that is playing right now and that I'm not going to say is too long. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Uh, please follow the blog, comment, let us know what you want us to talk about, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Right there with you. Magic, fantasy, it's all in today's work. Day in, day out. What I create as everyone else's fantasies has become so normal. I suppose even the illusionist can become disillusioned. <laughs>